So there's a spiritual outbreak that's taken place. We've noted in the book of Acts that it's now up to 5,000 people. There's a lot of people in this church. It's in Jerusalem. They've converted to Christ and they've organized themselves as a community around four important things. Acts 2.42, we read that they gathered themselves around prayer, around communion or breaking of bread, around the apostles' doctrine or preaching and teaching, and fellowship, hanging out, spending time with each other, sharing lives, and sharing the joy of salvation. So they gathered around this organizational element, which was informing their corporate worship, but also in this church was forming a culture of care and of love. It's very, frankly, it's very easy to start a church where prayer, communion, doctrine, and fellowship are taking place. You can organize your corporate fellowship and worship really easily. But do you know what else was happening in the church was there was a culture forming. There was a mutual love. There was a sense of mutual well-being being birthed in these people. Because, again, it's not very much good to have a church that is organizationally correct but has no culture of love. Jesus said that if you want a front row witness as to whether or not you belong to the church, if, you want, if the world is going to know that you belong to the church, it's going to be for your love for each other. And so, you know, you want to start a website for Evergreen Chapel, and we're going to redo ours soon. What is it that we want the world to know about us? That our preaching is better than some other church or our building is nicer or our programs are sharper or is what we want people to know about us that we love each other? Because Jesus said that's how the world's going to know that you follow Christ. So if you want to be distinct in this world, then show off the fact that you love each other. So, we're not saved into an individual journey. We're not saved like many other religions into an individual solo pilgrimage. But we are saved into a family or a living body. That's the analogy that Christ gave his church, that we're a body. We're not just a sea or an array of soldiers individually, but we are an actual body where some are fingers, some are fingernails, some are knees, some are hips. Some are livers, some are mouths and eyes. We all have need of one another. And guess who the head is? It's Jesus Christ himself. He is the head over the body. And so this body is working together. And so there's a lot of good happening here in Jerusalem. <clears throat> but, but a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Here comes two of those people who sold property. They go to this mega church in Jerusalem where everybody is selling their property and making sure that there are no financial needs in the church. This is a hot church. It's an attractive church. It's a thriving, spiritually growing church. And here come two of those people who sold their land and they lay it at the apostles' feet. My first heading is that hypocrites want attention. Hypocrites want attention. I'm going to focus a little bit more in this message on the church's perspective as opposed to Ananias and Sapphira. I'm not going to psychoanalyze them or, or get in their minds and say what they should or should not have done. This is more from the perspective of the church and what it means for us as a church. And so Ananias and Sapphira come forward and they've sold some property. Very sacrificial, isn't it? 
Be like one of you coming this morning and saying, guess what? I sold my house. I took all the equity out of it. Here's the equity, elders at Evergreen. Find out who needs it. I'm going to go to rent. I'm going to rent the rest of my life because I just want to bless the people in this church. Very sacrificial. Now, Luke mentions Joseph specifically by name, probably for two reasons. Number one, he became a leader in the church, but that came after he was first a person who took care of the church and who loved the church. And Luke mentions him probably because the church publicly recognized him, which is why Luke is making note of it. The church probably said, hey, we just want you to know whoever, you know, had their food paid for this week or, you know, whoever needed that donkey and it was bought for them to help work their land or whatever, we want you to know that it was Joseph. He sold his land. And then Joseph would have been probably very embarrassed because he was humble and he didn't want credit for it. But the church probably recognized him and said, hey, write a little thank you note to Barnabas because he just bought us all dinner for the next, you know, three weeks or something. So the church had recognized him. So Ananias and Sapphira had seen that recognition. They had seen that public display most likely. They were watching. They were looking at the honor that Barnabas was getting. He even got his name changed. They renamed him son of encouragement. He is starting to rise in the church. And Ananias and Sapphira say, hey, we have a plot of land. But instead of giving it all, I mean, imagine we could sell it for $100,000. We could keep 50 grand and still give 50 to the church. Barnabas's land was only worth 35,000 anyway. We can outgive Barnabas and still keep half of it for ourselves. And so these hypocrites, they want to join in on the rising that's taking place in the church. They want to seize an opportunity to gain honor in the church, to gain a reputation of kindness, without the sacrifice of kindness, of true kindness. They want the reputation for generosity without the true sacrifice of generosity. This also shows for us the ugly head of spiritual competitiveness. But I'm sure none of you have ever seen that before. Spiritual competitiveness. How about this? Spiritual one-upmanship. I'm sure none of you have seen that before. Spiritual one-upmanship. Do you know that the church is just a good a place as anywhere else to rise in the ranks, to become prominent, to become celebrated, to become seen as more honorable? The church is a fantastic institution for that if you let it become such a place. Spiritual one-upmanship. So they come and they keep back for themselves some of the proceeds. And they brought only a part of it and they laid it at the apostles' feet. This is a moment of reckoning for the church. This is a pivot moment for the church. I call my message shocking purity because this is a moment of shocking reckoning for the church. So he comes to Peter. Probably his first mistake. Should have gone to somebody less maybe important in the church, maybe less attuned to the Holy Spirit. He goes right to Peter. How brazen. So it's a moment of reckoning. In other words, this is going to answer the question, what type of person is going to rise up in the church? What type of person is going to become prominent and worthy in the church of Jesus Christ? 
You've got two types here. You've got Barnabas and you've got Ananias and Sapphira. Two people who seemingly do the same thing. They follow the same path. Now it's for the church to decide who is going to gain prominence. Who is going to gain influence? Who is going to be celebrated in the church? It's a moment of reckoning. Peter, the leader of a young, thriving megachurch, probably, in his own heart, might have thought, this is a really generous offering. Well, imagine what we could do with this. We could start a whole homeless shelter. We, we could build a church building. We could build a multi-site campus. We could probably even bring Starbucks in. We could do all kinds of things. We could start a podcast. We could... Peter's looking at this money and thinking, this could be very useful. It's a moment of reckoning. What type of person, and you know what? If you take somebody's money, you validate that expression, don't you? You validate it. And so he could have taken that and said, the money's useful, God. Like, we're, we're a practical church. We need it. And like, okay, so they lied. Everyone's lied, right? And you give them a pass and you say, hey, everyone, Ananias and Sapphira, they get to join the Joseph Club. We're going to rename them too. Son and daughter of encouragement 2.0. This is, this is the generous club over here. It's a moment of reckoning because essentially at that moment you say, who gets that kind of recognition? Peter answers, Ananias, <clears throat> why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Imagine you brought a massively generous offer. Imagine you sold your house and you brought half the equity to the church. And you laid it before the pastor and you said, I just want to bless you. And the pastor says, why has Satan filled your heart? This is why it's called shocking purity. This is shocking, especially for the world to look on and say, whoa, 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 Peter. What do you mean, Satan? Like they just had a, they, they stumbled. It was a mistake. No. Because Peter is remembering in the words of Christ, he said, Christ said to his apostles, you know, in the world, their leaders act like lords. They act like bosses. But in your world, in your kingdom, it's going to be like, if you want to be great, you're going to be servant of all. You're not going to get to the top by climbing over people. You're not going to get to the top through dishonesty. You're not going to get to the top through immorality. So Peter confronts Ananias distinctly harshly why has satan filled your hearts which moves us to our second point which is that their sin is far worse than they think i mean it seems like a simple enough plan right they're just going to sell the land they're going to keep some of the money and give the other half to the church and and they're going to say they sold it all so they'll get the recognition that barnabas got but then they'll just get to keep some and they'll get to stock some away for retirement or whatever seems like a simple plan right pretty straightforward Problem is, the church is not guarded by high-ranking men. The church is not guarded by mere men, mere pastors, or mere CEOs. You know how all kinds of dishonesty goes on in the world, and fraud, and money laundering, and all this sort of thing happens all over the place. And unfortunately, it happens in the church as well. But the reality is, all of that goes on because God allows it to. Not because God is ignorant of it. 
Ananias and Sapphira think this is a great plan. We'll just keep it to ourselves. I mean, who has to know? It's not going to hurt anybody and we'll just get a little bit of extra recognition. But the church is, in fact, as Peter will say, guarded by the Holy Spirit himself. The Spirit of God happens to be in this megachurch and he does not take to being lied to. I've been lied to and I've never known it until much later. I don't have a super great lie detector. In fact, if you want to lie to me, I'm one of the easiest people to lie to ever. Just throwing that out there. Just showing you my cards. I'm easy to lie to because I'm very trusting. I take people at face value. You could lie to me all day long and get away with it. But the Holy Spirit is not lied to. The Holy Spirit searches the heart. The Holy Spirit is among His people. The Holy Spirit is, is God and knows and Peter says, why would you lie against the Spirit? You can't, you can't fool the Spirit. So we need to recognize that the church has catapulted, I'm sorry, the Holy Spirit has catapulted the church into existence. He also remains with the church. He also remains to keep her pure. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, are you out of your mind, Ananias? You didn't have to lie. There's no rule that when you join this church, you have to sell your land. And you're just submitting to this cruel rule and saying, I can't afford to give all my properties. I need to keep some of it. But I don't want to break the rules, so I'm going to say it's all my land. He's saying, you're out of your mind, Ananias. It's your land. You didn't even have to sell it. And even when you sold it, you could have given as much as you wanted. You could have just paid for that morning's rental fee for the portico of Solomon, right? You could have done anything you wanted with the money. You could have bought brownies for one Sunday. We would have been happy. But you've gone and lied about it. You went out of your way to lie. You went out of your way to deceive not only us, but the rest of the church, you were hoping to be paraded in front of the church like Barnabas and deceive everybody, not just the apostles, right? Because they're not just looking for the apostles' approval. They're looking for the church's approval. They're looking for the church's honor. So they were willing to go right through to the, to the whole group and with a smile on their face, lie about their character. So foolish. Here in the early stages of the formation of the church, this is why in most cases, I think God is not striking people dead for their dishonesty in the church because there is dishonesty in the church today. I'm not speaking subconsciously of any dishonesty that I know, but I'm just saying we all go to church, don't we? Do we all have pure motives? Do we all do everything as above board as we possibly can all the time? Probably not. We see, even in churches that are more covered by the media, we see massive mishandlings of funds and, and manipulation of people, and it, it goes on. But here in the early stages of the church, these are called the formative years. The formative years. Formative years call for distinct choices, call for distinct reactions, call for decisive action. If you want to set the culture of your church in the right direction, you need 
at its beginning stages to make a clear statement about what is and is not okay. Remember, this is a culture that's amazing going on right now. They love each other. They're sacrificing. They're meeting each other's needs. They're loving each other. People are getting saved. So when somebody comes along into that early culture, remember, this is like weeks after Christ has ascended. Like these are like, this is the baby days of church planting here in Jerusalem. And somebody comes along and says, I would like to have prominence in this church. Here's my money. Your culture could go wildly off the rails at that moment where you give approval and honor to those who are wicked in their hearts. Christ is too interested in his church. He paid too great a price in his church to allow that to happen, right? Christ just bled and suffered and took the wrath of God in order to create the church for himself. He's not about to hand it over to fools and hypocrites who want attention. And so Peter acts with decisive thought. He deals with the pollution immediately. You have not lied to man, but to God. So here's what's important, what Peter's saying, is I don't care about the money, what he's saying. I don't care if you give me 10 bucks. I don't care if you give me $10,000. The money was all yours, okay? There's not some generosity threshold for your, here's where you're spiritual and here's where you're not spiritual. Give as you have opportunity. Give as you are able. Give sacrificially. But most of all, give with a joyful heart. Peter's saying, I don't care about the money. This is probably a very generous offering, but what he's saying is you have sinful desire. There's nothing wrong with selling a land and giving half the proceeds, even though Barnabas gave it all. That's what Barnabas saw fit to do. Great for Barnabas. It's not, it's not your burden necessarily. So don't compare yourself to other people in the church and say, well, I need to match what they did if I want to be seen as mature. If I want to be seen as spiritual, if I want to, you know, be in charge of a small group one day, I need to do the same thing as the other small group leaders did so that the, po- the pastor or the apostles recognize them. And it's none of that. Don't compare yourself to other people in the church. So it's not the action that they did that was sinful. It would have been perfectly fine for them to sell the land and give half the proceeds or a part of it or whatever it was. It's sinful desire that Peter is dealing with. You know, we can get pretty good at cutting out sinful action in our lives, can't we? We cut out the right movies. We cut out the right, you know, people who are poisoning our hearts. We cut out the right um, things that are considered sinful, the habits. We cut all those exterior things out and we think that we've made, you know, progress. But the Spirit deals with the desire of your heart. Where is your worship? Who do you adore The reason Barnabas gave all this land away is because he thought it belongs to God anyway and I love God so much. I've been bought with a price. I've been redeemed into his church. I'm a free man. That's why he sold the property because his worship, his adoration was to God through Jesus Christ alone. When your worship is right, your desires are right and they are made pure in the Lord. I want to share with you from Numbers 15. Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. uh, Numbers chapter 15. God, when he gave the law to Israel, 
He gives laws about sacrifices. And then in Numbers 15.22, this is through Moses. God says, "If if you sin unintentionally and do not observe all these commandments that the Lord had spoken to Moses. So if you're Israel and you get all these laws and you're thinking, what if I forget one? What if I just forget one? If you sin unintentionally and, and, and miss a command from the day that the Lord gave you the commandment and onward throughout your generations, if it was done unintentionally without the knowledge of the congregation, all the congregation shall offer one bull from the herd for a burnt offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord with its grain offering and its drink offering according to the rule and make one goat offering for a sin offering. And then the priest shall make atonement for the congregation for the people of Israel and they shall be forgiven because it was a mistake. It shall be forgiven because it was a mistake and they have brought their offering before the Lord for their mistake, and all the congregation shall be forgiven, and the stranger who sojourns among them, because the whole population was involved in the mistake. So God has mercy. God has great mercy for the unintentional sin. But listen to this. But the person who does anything with a high hand whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off and his iniquity shall be upon him. In other words, no sacrifice will take away that sin. He will bear the penalty for that sin, the high-handed sin. What does high-handed mean? It means deliberate, premeditated, decisive, bold, in the face of God's word, knowingly breaking God's word. And then the next paragraph in Numbers 15 tells us, when the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to the congregation, and they put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, this man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. Did a man just get stoned for gathering sticks? Acts chapter 5. Is a man about to die for giving half of his proceeds to the church? It's not the action. It's not the activity. God is not spiteful and trivial. When God gives his word to separate and purify for himself a people, he means the words that he says. Another passage says, Behold the kindness and the severity of God, of God. Another passage says, God is not mocked. In other words, does God give a command for no reason? Does God give a command like many of us parents do and then not stand by it? God is not like me. I give commands all the time that I fail to follow through on. God does not. It has nothing to do with how much he gave. But this is that it's a high-handed sin against the character and person of God. Ananias and Sapphira have said, we can do what we want in the church and get what we want out of the church. God says, no, you cannot. The church belongs to my son, Jesus Christ. 
The church needs to be recognized first by the people inside the church that we live and breathe according to God's mercy as a pillar of truth in the world. Not for no reason. First Timothy tells us that we are the pillar of the truth in the world. We lament that the world is going sideways, don't we? Oh, how bad it is out there. Does the world have a good witness of the truth in us? Does the world look at the church and say, they know the living God, because that's what God has called us to be. Remember, these are formative years. If your heart is burning within you, thinking that you might be dead by the end of this message, God has mercy. And as far as I know, I would have dropped dead in this pulpit 50 times already if God was still in that business. Again, he, he's forming the church. He's forming expectation in the church. Great signs and wonders are also being done in the same season. God is validating the message of the resurrection. He is saying, you will both be healed in Jesus Christ and you can drop dead in Jesus Christ depending on how you address him. Especially for those inside the church. I want to notice that it was the young men who rose up and wrapped him up and carried him out. Now, probably young men because this might be graphic, but a dead body is pretty heavy. Okay, so Ananias has died. He's dead. His lie caught him, and he died. He was not permitted to live through this sin. God said, this will not take place in my church. Now, was Ananias a Christian? He might have been. I know of Christians who have gone back to their sinful patterns and died as a result. Does God revoke forgiveness? No. Did Ananias have the Spirit of God within him? Possibly. I don't know. The point is, God said, you are not going to pollute the church. If he was saved, God said, you're coming home to me because your wickedness, I want to witness to the church that this is not going to take place. And if he wasn't, if all he wanted was to use the church for his own means to be great, then God have mercy on his soul. It's, a, it's, a, it's an amazingly bold thing to put yourself in the hands of God, assuming that you are right. But my point was that it's the young. The young take the body out. This is important. It's important for youth to recognize the work that God is doing. It's important for young people to see dealing with God. The young men carry out the body of Ananias. As they're going out, what do you think they are thinking? God is a holy God. I'm thankful to be part of this church, but I am not going to lie to Peter. It's not about Peter. It's as they're going out, they're saying, the living God is among us. This is real. Young people, God is with his church. He is with you. He knows you. He sees you. And the young are exposed to these consequences. And so we, I think as parents and older people in the church, should also be unafraid to allow young people to see the consequences of rebelling against God. It's almost never pretty. God does not allow everybody to die, but very often rebellion against God has costly results in life. Costly, costly results. Social destruction, the bodily addiction, Jail. I mean, God brings consequences for rebellion. 
and young people are made witnesses of it here. My final point is that this is how the world should see the church. This is how the world should see the church. This shouldn't be done just behind closed doors. So this is a church matter. This is it. We're dealing with this in-house. We don't want the word, we don't want the word to get out. Not so in Acts chapter 5. This is how the world should see the church. What happens? Oh, okay, so Sapphira comes in and she, same thing happens to her, which proves to Peter that they had conspired, right? And so she dies as well because she's committed to the lie. So she dies and then the young men carry her out. And in verse 11, great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard of these things. Fear came upon the church and everybody else who heard. Word got out. Two people just died in this megachurch because they lied. They conspired to lie against God. Word got out, and fear filled, filled the church. Now, this is not a walk on eggshells kind of fear. I just want to posit that. Because again, does that mean that the rest of the congregation was morally perfect? Absolutely not. They had all made mistakes. The point was, God was dealing with the desire, the high-handed sin of Ananias and Sapphira. That they were testing God. They were coming up against God and saying, we are putting our reputation against yours. Who's going to win? So word got out and an awe and a fear seized the church. It was a recognition and a realization that God is with his church and God will not share authority or fame with hypocrites. This is highly instructive for those who would desire to lead the church. Highly instructive for me. Will God share his fame with elders who are driving their own reputations, driving their own honor, seeking to win people to themselves, seeking to heavy-handedly lord it over people and control them as if he was a CEO of a small company? Will God share that, the church, with those people? For a time, potentially, but not for long I also wonder why nobody told Peter that this is not what the church growth models recommend. I'm in church plant training right now. We're learning how to grow the church. Striking dead some of the congregants does not rank high on the list of church growth models. Well, have you tried this at Evergreen yet? Just wondering. It even says... What does it say down in verse 13? None of the rest dared join them. People outside the church were like, I'm not going to that church. That's scary church. It deters some from coming into the church. But what else does it say in verse 13? But the people held them in high esteem. They held the church in high esteem. A lot of them did not want to join the church. But they held them in high esteem, knowing that this church, what it says, is what is real. The things that they say correspond with reality. God is truly among them. I, for one, don't want to be searched by God's light. I'm not going to join. But certainly when you look at that community, that's the real deal. That's what that means. 
They dared not join them, but they held them in high esteem. If we're going to have a bad reputation with the world of any kind, let it not be for our conduct and our purity. Let it be because it's a holy place. They didn't dare not join because they were honestly afraid. They dare not join because they did not want their sin exposed. This is a statement on sin. That's why they did not want to enter. It's the same thing that John says in chapter 1 of his gospel, that sin, I'm sorry, the, the darkness hated the light because people love their sin. They love being in darkness. And so they don't want to join the church. And so when we're evangelizing, so often people make excuses, right, for not believing in God, not coming to... It's because they don't want to repent. They don't want to give up their sin. They don't want to be exposed in their sin. It's a statement on sin. That's why people stayed out. Now, Christ died for sin, to be sure. He died for sin, to be sure. But it's all the more reason why when we sin with a high hand... It is absolutely intolerable to God. Romans chapter 6 says, Should we keep on sinning so that God's grace will keep on increasing? Because God has forgiven us and given us grace, should we keep on sinning? Paul asks rhetorically in Romans 6. He says, May it never be. May that never be what we are in the church. May we hate our sin. Now these people, they, didn't, they dared not join because what they're seeing is, this is a great church. They are sharing with each other. You know, if you join that church, there's a good chance you'll get at least one mortgage payment covered. You just got to go in there and say your need and somebody's going to buy you something. Very attractive church. But as a social club, the net cost outweighs the benefit. The net cost outweighs the benefit because when you come to Christ and join his church, you give up everything. You give up your life. You have a mortgage payment covered. Somebody buys you a car, something in the church. That's wonderful. But that only takes place because you have given up your life, and so have they. Our lives are not our own, but they have been purchased by the blood of the Son of God. So we don't own our lives. So as a social club, it's really not worth it. It's a small trade. You give up your life, you might get a mortgage payment covered. You know, you guys are, are sending Shannon and I to the spa probably this week because of that generous gift that you all came together to buy. That's an amazing thing. A night away, a day at the spa. But you have all given up your life. You've all given up much more than the money you contributed to that. I have given up everything, as have you, to follow this Christ. And so these little Blessings and bonuses that we get are just a, a drop in the pail compared to what Christ demands of us, which is everything. He owns us. We belong to him. To come to the church, you must deal with sin. 1 Peter 4.17, Peter says to his hearers, now is the time for judgment to begin at the household of God. God doesn't turn a blind eye to his own people. God judges and purges sin in his own people, not just Old Testament. God does it in the New Testament with his covenant people. The church is given multiple places in Scripture with how to deal with sin from an unrepentant person, from a person who says, I want to be in the church and I want to sin. 
The New Testament tells us that has no place in God's covenant people. I want to be in the church, but I want to sin is not a valid statement from a Christian. Scripture says, remove that person from you so that they will be dealt with. They will feel the loss of their community. They will feel the loss of fellowship with Christ. And in 1 Corinthians, we read that that happened to a man. And then in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes him and he goes again and he says, hey, that guy that you kicked out, restore him. Because of his sorrow, he has repented. He has come back to Christ. Hebrews chapter 12 says, God disciplines those whom he loves. Not the world. God is not out there judging the world all the time. He may be, but you know where he's judging? The church. His own people. He's disciplining us because he loves us. Now, not every hard thing you go through is because of sin that you have not repented of. That is a, that's a false belief in the church. But we, like David in the Psalms, where he says, acquit me of my hidden faults. We can repent of the things we know about, but we need to have a heart like David to say, Lord, even the things I don't know I've sinned in, forgive me. We need to maintain a humble heart of purity in the church. One of the tragic things is that people think that the church is a place that you can run to hide your sin because it's a place that's known for preaching grace and forgiveness. And so people with massive addictions to sin or tendencies towards sin or anger or domineering, they say, oh, the church is a good place to go hide. What a gracious place. They'll just keep telling me, oh, you know, Jesus forgives you. Jesus forgives you and I'll never have to deal with my sin. It happens in the church. Sometimes The church is the place where sin festers the worst. There are examples that I know of in churches in America and in Canada where a person who would otherwise be in jail for their sin is leading a small group, pastoring a church because the church has concealed it and hidden it in the name of grace. This is not pleasing to God. This is not the spirit of forgiveness. This is not the spirit of holiness. This is not the gift of righteousness that Christ has given his church. Sin is as serious now as it was before Christ dealt with it because he's given us his his spirit to dwell within us. So Acts chapter 5 shows us how we should think about this sin, that it's intolerable in the presence of the redeemed of Jesus Christ. Jesus said to his people that they were going to be a city on a hill, a light in a dark place. A city on a hill is not very bright if all the lights are flickering and dim and shattered. You know what your light is? Jesus said, practice your good deeds before man that they might give glory to your father. The way we live, the way we interact with each other is a light that shines to the world about Jesus Christ. It's our deeds. It's not what we say we believe. It's not, it's not the doctrine that we espouse. Our doctrine is not our greatest light. Our lives and our conduct are our greatest light. We are the witnesses to the reality of the kingdom of God. The death of Ananias and Sapphira is a witness both to the church and to the world that God is a holy God. And you know what? Some didn't join. None of the rest dared join them. But listen to this, verse 14. But more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. 
So there's a small group of people that don't want to join the church because it has dealt with sin. But it says more than ever, people were flooding into the church, repenting of their sin, coming to Christ. We are wrong-headed if we think that a church that deals with sin properly is going to be unattractive to the world. Dead wrong. You know why? Because the world is drowning in sin. And when they see a solution to sin, they will come running. They will. Because sin is man's biggest problem. A church that deals with sin is a church that is a witness to the world of the goodness of God and his love toward us. It also shows us that God is actively with his church to purify her and to prepare her for the feast that's going to take place with his son. Ephesians 5.25 says, speaking to husbands, love your wives the way Jesus loves the church. How does Jesus love the church? By sanctifying her, cleansing her with the washing of the word that he might present the church to himself without any spot or wrinkle. That's how much Jesus loves us. He's purifying us day by day because one day we're going to sit down and have a feast with him. If God is dealing with sin in your life, do not resist it. Happily throw your arms open and say, wash me clean, prepare me for the feast, make me holy. Also in the church, my friends, there is no fear in repenting of sin. There's no fear. This is not a message that if you come confessing your sin, you're going to die. It's the opposite. If you come concealing your sin, you will have consequences. Ephesians 5 also says, Awake, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The light of Christ will shine on you when you leave behind the deeds done in darkness. There's no shame in repenting. There's shame in concealing your sin. And that's exactly what Ananias and Sapphira were guilty of. Look even deeper in the text. Look at the compassion that the apostles had on the lost. They carried out the sick into the streets and they laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on them. The people gathered in towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits and they were all healed. There is spiritual revival breaking out. There are satellite campuses breaking out in the towns around Jerusalem because the church dealt with sin. The church is multiplying. The church is growing and thriving. And a church that deals with sin is not necessarily a proud and high and lifted up and isolationist church that we might stereotype them as. A lot of churches are very good at dealing with sin and they're uncompassionate and they are cold and they're unkind, and they don't do it in a spirit of restoring that person. But when, but when you love people, when you have compassion on them, when you have concern for them, they also know that there is safety in repentance. When you love somebody and take care of them, and they feel convicted to repent, they feel a safe place to do that, that you are going to treat them as Christ, receiving that person and forgiving them. But if all you do is bark down people's throats about holiness, who's going to come repent of their sin to you? Right? They're going to feel like, I'm just going to be kicked out of the church if I confess this. When it's the opposite, it's those who refuse to repent who have no place in the church. Because the church is a place that has been redeemed from sin by the blood of Christ at a very costly price. 
This is why high-handed sin has no place in the church. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.5, the purpose of my instruction is that all believers will be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and genuine faith. The goal of my instruction is that when you live your life, when you minister to people around you, you could do it from a heart of love and a clean conscience. The Lord wants your conscience to be clean. The Lord wants you to find safety and shelter in the church. But you must let go of hypocrisy. You cannot sin in darkness and then come in fellowship in the light and expect a happy time with your relationship with Christ. It will not happen. So let the word search your heart. Do not be condemned. Do not be consumed by this message in grief. But rejoice that Christ has given you the spirit which searches you out and brings to light through your conscience the things that you need to lay at his feet. Maybe at the feet of a brother or sister this morning. Seek pure motives. Spend time thinking about how and why you do things. Seek motives that are honoring to Christ, which is for his exaltation. Spend more time around people. And aspire to be like those who are selfless among you. Who's the Barnabas in our church? I'm not looking for a real name. But who's the Barnabas in our church? Are you more like Ananias and Sapphira? Go spend time with Barnabas. And be influenced by somebody whose motives are pure. God will work through that. God will bring you to purity. This is not about increasing your performance in the church. This is not about making you a better, more high-performance Christian. That's not what this is about. This is not a make sure you're not like the bad people sermon. The good news is that Christ has redeemed and assembled for himself a body in which we can love and care for each other. And do not allow the sin that sometimes creeps in on us to pollute what God has done in the church. But instead, deal with it and confess and be healed. Because you know why? Without Christ's mercy, we are all like this every single day. Like I said, I would have dropped dead behind this pulpit a thousand times already if it was about performance. It's not. It's about humility. The church was made for and purified by Christ to shine for him. I close with this verse. Philippians 1, chapter 6 says, The person, he, who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. So if you feel, oh, I'm not there yet. Oh, I'm, I'm a burden on this church. Oh, I'm one, of the, I'm one of the sinful ones in this church. Every single other person in this church is thinking the same thing. We are all the sinful ones in this church. But he who began the good work is going to continue it. And that's why we have confidence to continue worshiping, to continue loving each other, to continue on in this life together in the church. It's a beautiful picture. And that's why these two are placed next to each other. The beautiful culture of care and the intensity of sin within that culture. We're meant to take both and appreciate both. Because the culture of great love and great care and great selflessness will be corrupt and destroyed and meaningless and useless if hypocrisy is allowed to reign and grow and fester. 
Christ loves his church too much to let that happen. And so that's why this message, though it sounds so harsh, is so full of love. Because he loves you and he loves the church and he loves Smith Falls. The church thrived and grew when it dealt with sin. May the kingdom of Christ ever increase among us. May it increase in Smith Falls. May we be faithful to God's word.